0: Um, many people have been nice. They've been at our prayer meeting earlier tonight. A few people were praying for me, like, oh, Revelation's such a tough book. We pray for Pastor Brandon, you know, and like, it was really nice. And um, I felt, though, really encouraged by this quote I came across from G.K. Chesterton. It's actually in your bulletin. And though St. John saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. I thought, well, that's encouraging. I'm pretty sure I'm not going to be a wild, terrible monster tonight. So at least I have that bar to aim under. So great news there for me. So if you will, as usual, go to in the bulletin. I'm going to read to you the paragraph that just sets the tone for the context of the book. We do this every week so that we can just kind of jump into things. Um, and we're looking at the King of Kings. Jesus as the King of Kings. So here's this. They call him the king of kings and son of God. Worshippers hail him, their Lord and savior. Messengers herald the good news of his ascension. His reign promises global peace and prosperity. In his, degree, in his decree reside the power of life and death. His kingdom is said to be eternal. His name is is Caesar Domitian. But the church calls him Christ Jesus. Two kings, two kingdoms. Caesar will not allow it. Revelation examines this tension with visions altering between monsters and men, worship and war, prophets and prostitutes. But when the dust settles, only one remains the true king of kings. I don't know that can, that's, that's short and to the point, and I, I don't know how else to say it, but that's true. Most of Christianity's terminology for Jesus was ripped right off from Caesar's titles himself. And that's not to say the church was simply copycatting. We had no creative titles to give to our God. It was to make the point that the world was following a false leader and a false God, and that this is the true God and the true king of the world. And there's no better way to make that obvious than borrowing the language of the empire and applying that to Jesus. And so much of the terminology came right from Caesar's own titles and so when the church went around with their titles for jesus calling him the son of god and that his kingdom will have no end and so forth this was straight up treason in the face of the roman powers because they were literally declaring that caesar does not deserve to have those titles nor to be king of the world there's a different king who we follow and think that he deserves those titles and when you rule an empire, you don't allow people to talk like that. that. That talk doesn't let empires last for long. And it took a long time, but Rome finally sensed that the Christians were not Jewish. That this was a different sort of religion. And it took time, but they finally began to crack down on this talk and wouldn't allow it. And we see John, our follower of Jesus, in trouble in this manner. So he, like Rome did with all political threats they send them off into exile so they can think over things and usually didn't give them a chance to read to change their mind till they're dead so john is there abandoned but jesus is with him so this is revelation All right, I told you before, there's four visions. We're going to work with them like this. Um, These visions, in a literary standpoint, so you're reading the Bible and looking at its literary points, uh, there are four spaces in which John says he has a new specific vision. Now, within each vision, there are visions, right? Little scenes. If you will think of it like a play, like there's acts and then there's scenes. John has four major visions with a lot of things going on in between all those. And they're tipped off by the phrase, "...in the spirit." And so you see this phrase in the spirit in verses, in chapter 1, verse 10, 1, 10, 4, 2, 17, verse 3, and 21, verse 10. So those are the spots that tip off a new vision, and they generally go like this. The first vision where he says, I was in the Spirit, in 1 verse 10. That's where we have the vision of Jesus, the inaugural vision. He shows up to John, and he invites the King of Kings, invites the church to come and see what he's up to. It's a big invitation. This then, as we already read, it then goes into the letters to the churches, chapters 2 and 3. So he's inviting all of the church, seven of them. Yes, seven historic churches, but seven's also that number of universal, right? It's talking to all the churches in the ages to come, come and see and Jesus, the King of Kings, is inviting us in the first vision. The second vision starts in chapter four, in the spirit, four verse two. Um, the second vision is Earth as seen from heaven. Earth is seen from heaven. We know what Earth looks like. We live on the Earth. And the Christians in Rome knew what the Roman Empire was all about, and they saw its massive power, and they saw their little numbers. But they needed to see the earth and the, quote, might of Rome as heaven sees it from above, as the king of kings looks down upon it. And so chapters 4 all the way to 17 are going to be visions of earth from heaven. Then you get to chapter 17, and you have the third vision, and that is Babylon the whore. Babylon the whore, and that will take you all the way to chapter 21, and that's where you have your fourth and final vision, Jerusalem the bride. So the last two visions are a contrast, two cities, one's a whore, the other's a bride. Christian beliefs, uh, we have different beliefs, right? You can go, churches split over certain beliefs, and you go to this church, they believe this way. You go to this church, they believe this way. What unites Christianity is obviously Jesus, and there are a certain set of core beliefs about him that unite all of Christianity, So you call those central doctrines. We do not change these. We're all united on them. And If you want to change one of these doctrines, go ahead and call yourself a cult. We'll call you a heretic and move on. (laughs) For an example, these are doctrines like the return of Jesus. He's coming back. Uh, the bodily resurrection, Jesus from the dead, the Bible as God's inspired word. Generally, if if we disagree, if I ever disagree on those, you guys can be like, okay, we're out of here. And it'd probably be pretty dangerous if I changed one of those. But then you have the peripheral doctrines, and those are those are important, but they are not worthy of splitting churches over, and it does not send anybody to hell if their peripheral doctrine is different than your peripheral doctrine. So you have the central, important doctrines, but then you have the peripheral ones. They're important. They'll change the way you live and see the world, but they're not necessarily going to make you a heretic or somebody who's in some other religion. And some of these are things like the Trinity. You can be a Christian and have troubles with the Trinity, but it is an important doctrine, right? Um, the role of women in ministry different churches that think that women should have a, can lead worship, and some that think women should have no place on the platform whatsoever. The Bible doesn't make it that clear. And then you have eschatology as a peripheral doctrine. Eschatology is a study of the end times, and there are so many views on what that looks like. This is not worth dividing or arguing over. It's just a matter of how we're reading it, as I think you will learn as we go through Revelation. And then finally, you have opinions. So you have the central doctrines, the peripheral doctrines, and then you have the opinions. And those are just not even doctrines, but people like to make them doctrines, and they get really feisty over their opinions. Opinions are as silly as things like, should Christians have tattoos? Are they allowed to watch movies? Are, if you're smoking, can you really be living in the spirit? Those are the kinds of opinions that people have. But i am you guys may know, by I don't know if you know or not, but I'm not very... Um, I don't like opinions to be very prevalent. So, but those that make opinions very important, well, they make a big deal about the fact that I don't make a big deal about it. <laughs> so. All right, so Revelation, as you are probably, if you are even loosely aware of the book, you probably know there are different ways of reading it. And that's why G.K. Chesterton said there are so many more monsters from the commentators and they're actually in the book itself. Um, my, goal, my goal in our approach to Revelation, and I need you to hear this, so like, make sure you understand what I'm saying. My goal is to let Revelation and its message, to let Revelation loose in our world. So the worlds that we live in, I want Revelation and its message to be let loose into that world rather than letting our world loose into Revelation. Because we get a lot of that, actually. And I know people are going to be disappointed with my approach because I've heard everybody tell me, a lot of people at least, I've gone through Revelation with so-and-so and and so-and-so, and I'm like, I know all these names and they're respectable Bible teachers, and so my heart's like sinking as they say this, So I'm excited to hear you teach it. I'm like, yeah, about that. Um, so I, I, I want to say this up front. I will be on, I will fairly and honestly critique some of the teachings we have. Critique, not criticize, critique. There's a big difference. Critique is where you look at it fairly and you weigh it and you say, what's weak about this, what's strong about this criticize where you basically say, this is really lame. Whoever believes it's stupid. <laughs> We're not going to do that. So I, will, I think that as we go through Revelation, I will make you think maybe a little bit of how you've heard things in the past, but I'm not going to undermine that and say, oh, well, everything that you've believed is absolute rubbish. Because I may, I may be right with you on a lot of those things. So my goal is just simply let's look at Revelation for what Revelation has to say without reading between the lines. Because as much as I love Calvary Chapel and I've been raised in Calvary Chapel all my life, and I don't know that I would be a Christian if it wasn't for Calvary Chapel and their approach to Scripture, I love all of that. I do, and this is where I'm this is where I'm critiquing. Okay, um, I I do sense that often Calvary Chapel has fallen into a rut of reading between the lines in Revelation. Because we have established an eschatology so firmly that we believe that we tend to take Revelation and read our eschatology into it. Now, I'm not saying that Revelation will ever disagree with Calvary's eschatology, but we put our eschatology in between all the spaces where Revelation isn't actually saying that. Now, this might rile you up a little bit, but I have to say it. The rapture is not discussed in Revelation. Now, that doesn't mean there won't be a rapture. It just means that when we talk about it, we're inserting it into Revelation. Revelation itself does not talk about it. So I'm going to approach Revelation, like I said, to let Revelation loosen our lives rather than letting our lives and our world loose into Revelation. So um, Calvary Chapel tends to, and not, I'm, of course, I'm, st- I'm just generalizing. So we, we have a tendency to kind of read between the lines, but also, um, we have a tendency to do what's called newspaper exegesis. Exegesis is simply trying to extract from the text what it's saying. But a lot of the times you'll hear a lot of news articles and current events being thrown into Revelation that Revelation is just not actually saying anything about. It, it, it just looks like, well, this could be a nuclear missile. So let's read about how uh, Korea has been launching, you know, missile tests and how we're very near to a nuclear warfare and like we go crazy and, I, I under, like that's realistic and, and hypothetical. That yes, that can happen, but you're actually reading newspaper and current events into the book, and that's not what I want to do. So, look, if you find exciting, relevant events that might pair up with Revelation, go ahead, be excited, do that. But my job as a Bible teacher, not a news teacher, a Bible teacher, is to let Revelation loose into your world. So, I say all that to say, I've listened to so and so, so and so, and I'm so excited to hear you. Well, if you have me pinned up against them, you're going to be disappointed because I don't necessarily approach things in that manner. I hope that's clear. So again, please hear when I when I rile up some of your assumed beliefs and doctrines that are based in your mind and revelation. I am not trying to tell you that your belief is wrong. I am simply challenging the thought that that belief belongs in that part of the Bible. Okay, okay. I don't want a lot of like rumors going around because this mountain is very dry. Okay interpretation so now we got to talk about this fun part interpretation how do you interpret the book of revelation well one of these won't be a surprise to you but i'm going to briefly talk about two other interpretations so one way is reading it historically historically is where you read revelation as talking about the past and being fulfilled in the past that's reading it historically. Now, there are many fold ways of reading it historically, which just for if you want to take a Bible college class, get into all that. Um, but in, in a nutshell, some of them look at all of it being in, fulfilled in 70 A.D. when Jerusalem fell. So all of this was talking about God's visitation upon Jerusalem. That was his return. He judged the Jews there. And that's what the whole book is about. That's very, very, very past tense. Others look at it as Revelation starts in the past, and it's a chronology. It's basically a timeline of history leading all the way up to the time that Jesus comes. And that would be your reformers, like like Luther and Calvin. Most of your Reformation writers and the Puritans even, they looked at it that way. Um, Then you've got... So, so the, reading it historically, or in the past, it takes very seriously that there were seven literal churches in a literal region called Asia, which is now Western Turkey, and they literally had people there that were literally going through problems, and there were literal um, tyrants, monsters, that were ruling over them, making their lives hard, and John is writing to that situation. So uh, talk about a future ruler and stuff doesn't actually apply to Revelation. That's reading it in the past, reading it historically. Or... There's reading it theopoetically, theopoetic. That's a very fancy term for God poetry, and that this is basically it's it's very it's a very poetic piece of work, and all it's doing is it's trying to describe what, the way God works throughout history. So you read it. In the present tense, everything Revelation is describing is ongoing all the time because it's a poetic look at God and the cosmic powers that battle against one another. Or in other words, this helps you. Revelation is an extended commentary on Paul's passage in Ephesians 6 about spiritual warfare. So there's spiritual warfare. Revelation removes the veil and helps us see what's going on. And then third, there is, reading it, Uh, predictively, reading it in the future. And that is, as you are, I'm sure, most, if not all of you, are very familiar with, Revelation is looking at what's going to happen in the future, and it's predicting that there's going to be a future world ruler, and Jesus is going to come, and there's going to be cataclysmic events right before his return. Um, So that's what we're very familiar with. So, what are we going to do? The last one, of course. With some... Critique. Meaning that we need to, and this is the biggest fault I see in Calvary's way of reading revelation, is not that they read it futurally or predictively. That's fine. It's that we do it to the extent we ignore any historical context. And I think that's a huge error. John was a real pastor with real churches, with real problems in the first century. And he's writing to those problems that's what causes the book to come, the visions to start. So we have to take seriously the past and read it historically. But that doesn't limit the fact that there can be stuff in the future because as all biblical prophecy is supposed to do, the prophets of the Old Testament spoke to their people about their specific problems with the word from God. And yet as they spoke to the present context Sometimes knowingly, sometimes unknowingly. They were speaking twofold. Because what they were speaking about in the present also had a duplicate coming in the future. For example, Isaiah chapter 7, when the king of Judah is really worried because the king of Israel, the northern section of of Israel, uh, and another king of Syria are coming to make war against him. He's worried. So the prophet Isaiah comes to him and says, do not worry about these kingdoms coming against you for a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And that will be proof that before he can even know the difference between his right and left hand, these kingdoms will be no more. They won't even exist anymore. And guess what you read in the next two chapters, Isaiah has a baby and he names the baby. And it goes on to say that the baby's going to rule over the nations one day. And you're like, what in the world is going on? Because you get to the New Testament, and that prophecy is suddenly about Jesus. And that's the way we've always read it. But no, Isaiah was comforting the people with the birth of a child is going to be comfort that we will be saved by God. And yet, as he says that, he didn't know he was talking about a bigger child who's going to be born in the future, that Jesus was going to be that child to be proof that we are going to be saved from the forces of evil in the world. You see, that's how prophecy works. And there is no reason why Revelation can't work the same way. John is addressing past problems to his present congregation right there. Yet as he does so, who says that the patterns of experience they went through aren't going to be duplicated in the future and haven't been throughout? Is there only one Antichrist or were there Antichrists persecuting the church then as well? cannot another like Caesar rise up and impress the church or or, or, the, or the Jews, or depending on your view of Eschaton, if you're confused, just stop, just, okay, Brandon, just, we've got to work our way there, not, okay. So, and then also, we're going to also read it in the present, theopoetic, any time you read this book and apply it to your life, you're doing that already. Most people just don't know they're doing that. You're looking at this and you're spiritualizing it to mean something at all times all the time. So, but we're in the end times. We're in the last days. I know Peter said the same thing at Pentecost. So the last days have been 2000 years. And actually that's the definition of the last days. Biblically, it was the resurrection of Jesus and the descent of the spirit. That was what marked the last days. So when people say we're in the last days, they actually aren't saying anything surprising. Duh, Peter told us that a long time ago. They just mean they think we're in the last of the last days for what it's worth. Okay, another one more nerdy section cuz this is important too. Genre. How what is Revelation? Um there's lots of talk. This is really important when you look at interpreting it. Uh, there's a lot of talk about it. it's an apocalyptic writing. An apocalypse is basically a certain Jewish style of writing which was su- it used super hyperbolic I, it used visions and imagery in a hyperbolic way, hyperbole. And um Kind of blew things out of proportion to give people the point. It was usually written by someone with a different name. They ripped off the name of some dead saint in the past and said, I'm pretending to be him. Everybody knew it was a joke, like, not a joke, but they knew that he was pretending that it wasn't really the guy rose from the dead and wrote this letter, and you know. So it was just a certain style of writing in which you were encouraging people who were in distress. Um, it has a lot of likenesses to an apocalyptic writing. Um, So it is an apocalypse on one hand, um, but it's also a letter on the other hand. Very obviously a letter. John, as we're going to read in a second, John writes it like a letter. He writes letters to the churches, and he ends it like a letter, just like Paul's letters. It has the same elements. It's just an epic letter with apocalyptic imagery. So it's a a letter on apocalypse steroids, basically. (laughs) And then... Um, third genre. So we've got a letter, you have got apocalypse, we've got prophecy. It calls itself a prophecy. And like I already said, prophecy was not always forecasting. It was preaching to the present with a byproduct or a side effect of future prediction. The point of prophecy was never to predict. It was always to comfort. It had the side effect, you know, like the pills and the warnings that they tell you, like, take this pill for this problem now and it may do this later. That's what prophecy did. Here, be comforted now. Something might come with it in the future. <laughs> so, in a way, uh, prophecy is two dimensional, not three dimensional. Um, two dimensional is like a stick figure on a piece of paper. Three dimensional is what we see because we have depth. So, two dimensional, horizontal, and vertical. I did that wrong. Vertical and horizontal. Uh, but three-dimensional takes those and adds depth. So prophecy doesn't have depth. So prophecy is like looking at mountain ranges in the, fu- in, in, in the distance and not being able to distinguish the distance between those mountain ranges. So prophecy just says, I see these things, but it doesn't know, is it going to be right now? Is it going to be tomorrow? Is it going to be 2,000 years? So the prophets never knew, they just said things. So it is in that sense that revelation can be prophetic. The nature of prophecy is to let light shine from the future upon the present. Okay, so needless to say, we're going to read Revelation as all three of those. As a letter, it has historical past roots. As an apocalyptic writing, it has present sensational metaphors and images to be immersed in for the present. And as prophecy, it has predictions as a side effect, <laughs> predictions about the future. And some of them are intentional, like I'm coming back, <laughs> quote Jesus. Um, so we're going to have all three of those worked in. Okay, talk about the context of this letter. So probably the 90s, it's about 60 years after Jesus, written by John, uh, debate, but we believe the apostle, we don't see any reason why not, he seems to know Jesus personally, Jesus would present himself to John, so seems to be the apostle, the one that followed Jesus, the one that wrote our gospel, which we just finished studying, and the letters, which we just finished studying. Um, He's on an island because he's being punished by Rome. So persecution is the, the result of why this is being written. The church is going under persecution. Now... Usually when, and I grew up with this image, when we talk about Nero persecuting the church in the 60s and now Domitian, the present Caesar, the present emperor in the 90s, we think of them as being these angry, like frothing at the mouth, kind of vicious animals that are just like, kill them all! You know, Just we make a cartoon out of it. But reality is that they really didn't care that much. They had a lot of other things to worry about than a very small religious sect called Christians somewhere in the corner of their empire. Um, They did not sponsor the persecution. Domitian did not. So don't think Domitian led this hunt after Christians. It was locally. It was started locally. And the local magistrates harassed the Christians within their cities. So this was just spontaneous harassment from very pious Romans who didn't like the Christians within their city. And why didn't they like the Christians in their city? Very simple. Let's go with me to Asia. That's the western section of Turkey, right on the edge facing the Mediterranean Sea. Um, uh, Aegean Sea, excuse me. So the western edge of Turkey, Asia. There are churches in there. John seems to have some relationship with all these churches. And Asia is a very Greek area. And they became dominated by the Romans, of course, in time. And the the people of Asia realized that they needed the friendship of Caesar in order to have prosperity and peace. They needed the friendship of Caesar. So what did they do? They sucked up to him. So they began to build temples to worship Caesar. And this got so competitive that each of the cities of Asia began trying to outdo one another because it was an enormous honor to be recognized by Caesar as the Caesar worship center of Asia. And so usually it was between Ephesus and Pergamum who were duking it out to be recognized by Caesar as the official torchbearer of his cult. So there was a lot of competition to be in and cozy with Caesar's opinion of your city. Now, as the entire populace moved in this direction, progress, man, we're so progressive um, and getting peace and prosperity. It was the Christians who were holding them up because now you have a portion of your population who refuses to even acknowledge Caesar. Well, you're holding us back. You're the reason we're not as prosperous as Pergamum over there. And so the local leaders were beginning to look disfavorably upon Christians. Not only would they not worship Caesar or acknowledge Caesar as the son of God, but they wouldn't go to certain sporting events or to the banquets or to the religious festivals. These were all common part of Roman life. This would be like, this was just very antisocial. They didn't acknowledge a god, so they were actually literally called atheists ironically the christians were the first atheists so it was not good for christians and when john writes to them the message that he says to them don't i'm encouraging you don't follow caesar go after jesus even to death what he is literally doing is he is burning the american flag That's the way, as we would see someone burning the American flag, that's the way Romans would see John's message and Revelation's message. It was that offensive, because it was totally critiquing their entire way of life, maybe criticizing is the right word, right? (laughs) And undermining it and saying that you guys are wrong. And the Romans were riled up, because this is not just about beliefs. This is about the prosperity of the empire, So what would happen at this time, uh, generally you would just lose your economic status, you wouldn't prosper in business because you were now left out. Back then, if you had a certain business, you worked with the other business people and became partners because you were all trying to survive. In America, we're different. You do the same thing as like me, well, we're competitors, right? Macintosh and Apple. Not back then. They would be friends, and they would work together. Well, if you don't go to the parties in which they sacrifice to the gods and then have their orgies after these parties, because you're a Christian, you don't go to those, you're not on the inside of the business deals, and you're now on your own. And that's a very hard place to be back then. So you would suffer economically. And there might be uh, fines and fees slapped onto you because you wouldn't comply with the city, what the city wants you to do. So that's most of the persecution. Not many people are being put to death, although that did happen. Okay, that will end our introduction. Very important as you get to a book like this, right? That's why we're only doing one chapter tonight. So let's go through the chapter now. You can all exhale. You did it. Good job. Congratulations. (laughs) One verse one, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, Jesus, to show to his servants, us the things that must soon take place he made it known by sending his angel to his servant john who bore witness to the word of god and to the testimony jesus christ even to all that he saw blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy thank you very much and blessed are those who hear there you go (laughs) You're welcome. And who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. First, the revelation of Jesus Christ. revelation simply means to unveil. And in many ways it's appropriate because what we have in Revelation is we have the normal mundane world that we see with our fleshly eyes, but Revelation is pulling the curtain back to show us the, the drama that God has been doing behind the scenes the whole time. That's the revelation, and Jesus is at front and center of that. Now, there's a question, because the Greek is unspecific. How does this read? Does it read that that Jesus is the subject of the revelation, or that he's the source of the revelation? In other words, is he the center? Is that what the revelation is about? Or is he the one giving the revelation? Um, I found that it's pretty cheesy discussion, and people waste eight and pages on it because it's both. It's clearly both. It's coming from Jesus, and it's about Jesus, which me- means we need to realize this from the get go. Revelation is Christology before it is eschatology. Let me put it in layman terms: Revelation is about Jesus before it's about future prophecies and predictions. We have to keep that order straight. There is not a single prediction in Revelation that is not there for the sole purpose of exalting Jesus. So Revelation is not just a nice little timeline for okay, let's now we know what's going to happen. Glad we're not going to be here. That's not the point. The point is to exalt Jesus, and it's the only reason anything's mentioned in the book. The things that must soon take place, it goes on to say. A lot of controversy on what does it mean must soon take place seeing that this was written almost 2,000 years ago. doesn't seem like it's very soon for us who look at it in the future. So here you go. People that interpret Revelation in the past say that this soon is referring to the fall of Jerusalem, which happened in the 70s. So they obviously don't think that John's writing in the 90s, they think, it's written earlier than the 70s. It doesn't seem quite like that might be it. Um, that these things must soon take place. If you're reading it in the present, the theopoetic view, reading it is, is always applying to the present, then it means the time begins in John's time and continues to the present. Like all these things started with John and they're just still going because they're just patterns that are keep repeating themselves over and over. There's always a beast. Did you know that? There's always a beast in history. Call him Hitler, call him Napoleon, call him Caesar. There's always a beast. And so that's the way they would look at it. In the future, um, we would, of course, the problem with this is that we look wrong. It must soon take place. Well, it hasn't been very soon. So interpreters say that soon means quickly. Or that soon is relative to God's time. The one who, 2 Peter 3.8 says, a day is as a thousand years, a thousand years is as a day. And then blessed is he who hears and reads this book. Um, There are seven Beatitudes in this book. So you're going to see that word, blessed are you, seven times. We'll get into those as we go, but you can make a note. There's seven of them. Which, by the way, if it's blessing the hearer and the reader, implies that the blessings aren't limited to the past, nor are they reserved for the future, but it's an ongoing thing. So Revelation has something for the present. And then verse four. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia... Again, that's not the Asia we think of. That is Western Turkey. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of Kings on earth to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom Priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion, not Caesar, forever and ever. Amen. So here he introduces, like a, Paul, like a Pauline letter, right? Grace and peace to you. See the letter element. Um, he's writing to seven churches, which is, yes, seven historical churches. And these are ones that John obviously knew about, but we know that the letter went to more than these churches because there were many churches around these churches. And um, he's just simply picking the main ones on the highways as this letter would circulate to the churches. So he's picking seven that he has knowledge about the conditions of, writing to them. But the number seven being completeness in the Bible also speaks that this isn't just to those seven because it's talking about the complete church. So you and I, the capital C church church, is included in this message. John had great foresight there. Then we have, we're told about three individuals. He who was and is and is to come, that would be the father. And this is likely a Greek phrase for the Hebrew phrase, I am who I am. In Exodus 3 verse 14 So Jesus, uh, God, the Father, is he who was and is and is to come. Uh, Many commentators think that that's echoing I am who I am. Second, we're introduced to the seven spirits, Um, thus the Holy Spirit. Why seven is the Holy Spirit? now What would that be, a trinity seven times, like a sevenity, I don't know. I'm showing my ignorance. Um, it's not the point. The point is, you can look this up later. Isaiah 11, I think it's verse 2. Yeah, Isaiah 11, verse 2, describes the Spirit of the Lord with seven descriptions. So it could be the sevenfold Spirit, all those things. It says the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of... I don't want to say anymore because I, I don't remember. Or it's referring to Zechariah 4, where there's a candlestick with seven lamps, like the menorah, except the, the temple version, which had seven lights on top. And we were told in Zechariah 4 that those are the eyes, the, the candles, the seven, are the eyes of God, which range throughout the whole earth. And then it goes into saying, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. And that those seven lights, are the, that's the spirit of God going out to all the world. Seven, of course, being completion, the spirit is everywhere. And that's probably the point because Zechariah 4 comes into play later in Revelation. And anyways, the point is that the Holy Spirit's here, and maybe it's just his completeness and his everywhereness. So the Father always is and was and is to come. The Spirit is everywhere and complete. And then verse 5, our third person, Jesus Christ. So we have the Trinity right here. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. So there's three titles given to Jesus. Faithful witness, firstborn of the dead, ruler of the kings of earth. Um, each of these are corresponded with three actions described in the next part. Middle of verse 5. To him who loves us corresponds to the faithful witness. Jesus was our witness, our martyr. He went all the way to the cross because he loves us. John wants his readers to go all the way to their death as well and never give in to Caesar. Um who has freed us from our sins corresponds to the firstborn of the dead. He died to free us from our sins, like the Passover lamb firstborn of the dead does not mean that Jesus was created or born. It just means his position, his resurrection exalted him to the position of King of Kings. And that can, you can find that in Psalm 89, verse 27. That's where John is borrowing from that Psalm. Psalm eighty nine, twenty seven. I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Amen. And then the third, he, verse 6, He made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, that corresponds with he is the ruler of kings on earth. So he is the king, he has a kingdom, we are members of the kingdom, but we're super members because we are at the priesthood of this kingdom. And that's borrowing from Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, where Israel was gathered at Mount Sinai, where God was the king of the mountain, and he sent them out as his priests to connect the nations, the lost nations, with the God of Israel. They obviously failed massively in that mission, but that was their goal, to be the bridge between God and the nations. And we are extending that. We are now his priests, and we are trying to bring the nations to the king of kings. That's what it means by calling us a priesthood. And now verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Amen. So that's what John wants us to know. He's launching the book. This is like, if you will, his thesis statement. He's coming. Okay. Verse 9. Did I skip eight? It is. I'm sorry. Verse eight, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. First and last, it means he's everything. So verse nine, we read it. You got some good application out of it. We now know that John is on Patmos. He's been exiled. As a church leader, he takes a brunt of the persecution. He's physically removed. Um, I want to point out, though, in verse 9, he calls himself their brother, your brother and partner in the tribulation. So John alone isn't suffering. He knows others are. And he says, look, I'm right there with you. And the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Here we have three things. I'm your partner in tribulation, kingdom, and patient endurance. Tribulation is what the church has in the present. Kingdom is what we have in the future. Patient endurance is what we need in between. And that's what John is going to encourage him throughout the entire book, patient endurance. So he's in the spirit on the Lord's day. He keeps the Lord's day, which is Sunday. That's the resurrected Lord's day. We still do that. He doesn't pity himself. He keeps worshiping. And that's when Jesus appears to him. So in verse 12, he turns to see the voice that was speaking to him. And he saw seven golden lampstands. So those were the lights in the temple, uh, now being associated with the church. So John sees the church as the light of the world, which the Jewish temple did not accomplish. And Jesus is clothed as a priest, white long robe with a golden sash, and he's in the midst of them. So as the churches are being threatened from around, Jesus is in the midst, keeping their light going as a priest did. Keep the light going, trim the wicks, keep them burning. So that's a comforting vision right there. Jesus in the midst. He's called the son of man. The Son of Man comes directly from Daniel 7, which we read at the beginning of worship, in which you had the picture of these four monsters rising up out of the sea. Then it switches to the Ancient of Days with white wool snow hair sitting down. And the Son of Man comes to him, and the Ancient of Days gives to him a kingdom which shall not end. So these four beasts who think that they have their own hot stuff, their kingdom that's going, Rome included, Jesus comes, the Son of Man, to topple those kingdoms, and his will never end. That's what Daniel 7 is saying. By simply saying, I saw one like the Son of Man, we are instantly launched to that, and all of that story is now inserted in Jesus. He is that king who's going to topple the other kingdoms. Okay, um... One more point about the vision that I thought was cool is the feet furnished like bronze or burnished like bronze there in verse 15. Bronze is a combination of copper and iron. And iron is strong but can rust. And bronze doesn't rust but is pliable. But you put the two together and they make a very solid metal. And Jesus is showing the strengths of both coming together. So together, you get the best of each. This is the foundation, the feet of Jesus' rule. His foundation is, it's not pliable. I'm in charge, but it will not rust. It will not fade away. Um, This vision has seven aspects. The white head, the eyes, the feet, the voice, the right hand, the mouth, the shining face. These seven work chiastically. (laughs) Literary term for... They mirror each other from the center out. So in other words, one and seven deal with the head, the white head and the shining face. Numbers two and six deal with parts of the face, the eyes and the mouth. Uh, numbers three and, four, five. 3 and 5 deal with the feet and the hands, those instruments of strength that we use to do things. And then the fourth is the middle. It's the voice, and that's the center of the revelation. It isn't so much what John sees. Remember, it says he heard a voice and he turned to see the voice. It's the voice of God which continues to manifest itself to us today if we have ears to hear. And then finally, we come to John's response to this revelation. It says he falls as though dead. I feel that way just studying and teaching the book. I can't imagine seeing the source of the book. So John is comforted with his right hand, fear not. And he, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died. I'm in verse 18, by the way. And I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. in Hades. I have the decision of life and death right here. And no one can get into Hades. That's the realm of the dead in the Greek world, the Roman world. No one can get into the realm of the dead without me unlocking the door. No one will be stuck in there because I can get them out. So this is such comfort to a church that is maybe going to face death and definitely in the future that they know that death is not in vain. They know who holds death, the access to death. So John tells them to write The things that you have seen, the things that are, and those that are to take place. John Corson is made very famous by saying, Revelation is an easy book to understand. You just need to know the divine outline. And he goes through these three, right? The things that are, the vision John saw, the things things that were, the vision that John saw, the things that are, the letters to the churches in chapters 2 and 3, the things that are to take place from chapters 4 to 22. However, it's very nice and cute. Um... I don't know that that's what it's saying, though. The things that you have seen refer to the entire book. John saw all those things and then wrote them down. The things that you have seen in the book are now divided into two parts. The things that are and the things that are to come. So in other words, our suspicion that we need to read this, yes, as predictive prophecy, but also as rooted in history are confirmed. Because the things that John saw in this vision and wrote down, they are applicable to the things that are in John's time and are to come. So from what, from the day after that to all the way to us, it all, Revelation is speaking to. And this I find so wonderful. We can come to this study and not keep asking, well, why does this matter if we won't be here? Because that is a legitimate question. Because the point is that revelation speaks to us because the things in this book are the things that are and also to come. But we cannot go into this book saying, well, from chapter four on is all just future and it doesn't really matter. No, all of that was addressing something to John's audience and has further extension to the future. So we need to find out where we fit in that and what it's saying to the church in the breathing present.